Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Hey, Look, I'm here I, too. Uh, I'm here as I'm, well. I'm also We're here. helping, George. And we don't put on voices when we read ads. Look, we know you want to get to the podcast, <laughs> so we're going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. Not what more do you people want from us? If Rihanna Giddens' aria code was every week, we'd be screwed. They hired a woman, ladies. It's Come on. So, they, you got to start getting into so this. It's so good. Aria code. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Check like, it out. It. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. And twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. Ooh. Twenty bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on pomegranate molasses and fancy tahini. That's true. That's not so a joke. The, the original ad had something about hair products. And I'm almost bald. So I don't understand what you're trying to go. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if we're going to talk about hair products in this room, I'm probably the one that consumes the most of everyone. So, yeah. So, ten bucks buys my hair products for a week, guys. You can do it. Don't think you can give? Oh, yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most so of all, the retweeting is actually very environmentally sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reduce your carbon footprint. Retweet. Exactly. Just use Especially if you use real birds. Over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most of all, keep listening to America's talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. Guess what? Tonight's show is not live. It's podcast only. Minutes before we went on air, we realized that the uh, women's basketball team up here in Evanston was having their game live broadcast, which when you think about it, is actually pretty on brand for our show. So we're doing Getting a- preempted by the ladies. Exactly. Or, once. or sports. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's Oliver Camacho. I'm also joined by the triumphantly returning Ashley Hardgrave. Hello. All right. Tonight, we remember Morella Frenemi will play some favorite performances of the iconic Italian soprano who died yesterday at the age of 84. But first, we go inside the huddle with American soprano Marnie Breckenridge, mm. a darling of the contemporary opera circuit, starring in the world premiere of Tapestry Opera's Jacqueline in Toronto later this month. Plus, two-minute drill, big money in St. Louis, head-shaking in New Zealand. Great to have Oliver and Ashley in the room tonight. I didn't watch the Oscars. That's no surprise. That is the gay Super Bowl. But I did, and you did. So no surprises except for uh, the last award of the night, which was uh, Best Picture to Parasite. Go go Korea. Go I South was Korea. actually surprised about Director too. I was delighted mm-hmm. that he got it for Best Director, but yeah. I was still very surprised. I was I was thinking that it might go in one of the other directions. You know, I mean, the acting nominations were all kind of a lock. It's been the same four people, yeah, four people throughout award season. Yeah. You know, and the people that got the Golden Globes for a number of those awards weren't even nominated. Like you didn't see Aquafina up there. Ugh, you didn't see I'm so Edgerton mad about that. There. Yeah, yeah, I know that was incredibly hard. Any of the cast of Parasite, which is a tragedy. Yeah, but, or um, my girl Greta for director. Who, oh my uh, god. P.S. Sorry to get too in the weeds on this, but I was gonna say too inside baseball, but I guess I can say that here. Um, did you see Natalie Portman's red carpet look? With yeah, the she cape? had like a cape that had the names of all the women of all of the snubbed female <laughs> yeah. directors. It was brilliant. It was so good. I'm. So, we can we can stop talking Oscars if you want. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. American soprano Marnie Breckenridge is captivating international audiences with roles ranging from the Baroque and bel canto to modern. Her passionate interpretations of contemporary works include Mother in Dog Days, Sierva Maria in Peter Etfos's Love and Other Demons, La Princesse in Philip Glass Orfei, and Ruth in Luna Pearl Wolf's The Pillar. She continues her collaboration with Luna Pearl Wolf and Royce Vavrek, Creating the role of Jacqueline Dupre in Jacqueline the Tapestry Opera that opens next week. She joins us via phone from Toronto. Marnie, welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. There are so many more credits we could have added to that, but I don't know where you begin with somebody like you who has, Aww. I mean, seriously, I was like looking at your press kit and just looking at your website. It's like, oh my God, what modern opera role have you not sung in your career at this point? <laughs> 
uh, well, there's, there's still a few out there that I'm, uh, you know, kind of chomping at the bit to do at some point. But, you know, I'm grateful for all the ones that I have been able to do so far, my goodness. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of I kind of fell into it um, in a way. And uh, and I, uh, boy, it, it, I, unbeknownst to me, it's it's true, truly my passion. And uh, I think that's because early on I, I probably missed my calling in Broadway and uh, uh, modern opera, you know, really bridges the gap between old world opera and singing in classical style and then telling new stories and new music. Well, I definitely want to talk about how one kind of breaks into that sort of subgenre of opera. But I do want to remark that uh, a lot of your press always seems to comment on your uh, physicalism, your, your you know, dynamic physical performances. And then I was like tooling around on your website and I saw this uh, production of uh, Candide, the Robert Carson production, where you're singing like the Marilyn Monroe uh, version <laughs> of uh, Glitter Be Gay. And they're like lifting you and you're like probably don't have your feet on the floor for most of it. And you have to sing, you know, high cue and stuff like that. So what what is it like? Tell us, is there something about your training that is not really obvious to people from your website, like some some hidden part of your training that we don't really know about that you can share with us? Sure. Or are I you mean, just a freak of nature? <laughs> a freak of nature, huh? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, I'm probably a freak in some ways, but uh, I definitely took ballet and jazz uh-huh. as a kid, and a lot of gymnastics. Uh-huh. And, but yeah, but I wasn't. I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was very good at it. <laughs> I think it just kind of. I think there's a natural kind of spaz inside of me that, that just loves to go for it. You know, like I just, I don't know if that's the right word. That's a terrible word to use, but there's actually, I was was totally on board with that, Marnie. I support the word spaz. So (laughs) run with it, run with it, you know, and like a goofball, I think, you know, as a kid, I was always doing goofy things and trying to entertain my family and, um, kind of really always coming from a humorous place and not a very serious one. And, uh, so yes, so I did some training, and then of course, and then I went to the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco to do acting training because for a time there, I kind of thought maybe I would be a straight actor. Um, I, I, I just I didn't know, but then when I started training my voice, I went, oh wow, what is this opera thing? And ooh, what it, what would it be to sing, you know, Sophie and Rosencavalier with all of those polyphonic textures and that amazing music that I'd never really heard growing up. Um, it was all Barbara Streisand, liturgical church music, and a little bit of Baroque and a little bit of opera and some, you know, pop thrown in, but not not a lot of true opera. Well, so, or, you know, operas, opera right. singers, you know, we, yeah. Well, so maybe that brings us to the topic of, you know, contemporary opera, which you are clearly one of the darlings of the contemporary opera creators. Do you find that they're looking for, you know, singers that have uh, extra skills besides just being able to make the music come alive? Yes, I think so. I think that, and especially in telling more modern stories, I mean, they may be telling an an old archaic story, but in a new modern way or with modern music. I think that, you know, hopefully they they want to cast somebody who moves and acts and and, um, talks like the person that they're portraying, you know? Um, And so maybe... Maybe in some ways, yeah, they've they've looked to special skills uh, for certain modern music uh, opera singers. Um, I think that that definitely comes into play, and it definitely acting, and especially when you're when you're singing in English, which most of them are in English, you know, um, or not all of them, but but many are. I think when you're communicating in your own language too, you, it's just uh, even more of a truth telling uh, device. Um, you have the ability to to unlock more. You're able to do more physically because you're not doing the mental gymnastics and math of trying to act in a foreign language. You're acting in your native language, so you have more of your body to to tell the story with. I think you're. That's. I wish I had said it just as eloquently as you just did, <laughs> Ashley. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. You know, I do find that you know people that kind of get. You know, I've seen a number of singers that get good at modern opera and then they continue to get called 
for modern opera over and over and over again, and it becomes something, a bit of a calling card, as it were. And I do think that that's part of it. I think that, you know, a lot of times that music can be sort of stereotypically challenging. You know, it's it's very different than singing Mozart. But because you are, again, a native speaker, you're acting in your native language, more of your brain has the bandwidth to compartmentalize and say, okay, so now I'm doing this really, you know, complicated, you know, uh, um, tonal texture while I'm doing a complicated rhythm, but I also have enough of my brain left to actually evoke an emotion and pull a Marilyn while I'm being thrown about during Glitter to Be Gay. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that that's that's well put. And I think also there's so, there is something to this um, Broadway style of understanding how to do different things with your voice, you know, mm-hmm. being able to speak on it a little bit so that not everything is, you know, kind of a high placement and spun. But some things are actually kind of more, not sprechstimme, but, but more, you know, immediate, you know, hello, you know, yeah. instead of you know it's it's right. less it can be less precious it can be less bel canto and i think that that broadway thing plays into it and actually many of the modern com- the living modern composers i work with say to me look i don't want you to sound like an opera singer why are you <laughs> you know singing um an american girl and sounding british or why are you sound you know singing so proper um I'm going to be doing Harvey Milk coming up uh, here and playing Diane Feinstein. And I coached with Stuart Wallace and he said, he said, no, I wrote in every single inflection that I want. It's like, Hey, Hey, how are you guys? And then, you know, here you spin into more of an opera vowel, but he really wants kind of that. I keep calling it Broadway, but I think we need to almost come up with a new term for what, modern music in this age is when it is written in English and when it's by North American and American composers because, you know, we had Gershwin and Tin Pan Alley and we had Cole Porter and and Rodgers and Hammerstein and they were creating music theater. So we keep calling this modern style opera, but I feel as if it is modern music theater. I'm so glad you are saying these things because I was almost going to prompt you to like drop some names and, you know, tell us, give us some anecdotes about what some composers or librettists are specifically asking for you. Um, For singers that are going through the conservatory system right now, uh, what would you say to them uh, for ways to make themselves more attractive or more skilled to prepare for a career that encompasses not just bel canto and Mozart and Puccini? definitely the the acting definitely being able to communicate the poetry in a truthful way from the heart but train your voice in a bel canto way understand what breathing is understand what an easy onset is understand what your breath to onset is understand what it means when someone says oh lift your soft palate you know what does it mean when people say you know because there are so many ideas of technique out there, right? So get get a solid technique so that you can do anything you want to do with your voice. You can sing straight tone, you can sing vibrato, you can sing loud, you can sing soft. Understand your instrument instrument from the inside out, and then if you want to cultivate yourself more in in modern opera, I would say you have to understand these styles, understand what serialism is, understand what you know what the arpeggios that Philip Glass writes are, you know, really learn about new composers, try to hear music in different ways. Um, but still with the intent of telling a story. And if you're going to, you know, tell a story in somebody's opera and their librettist is, you know, an American librettist writing from an American point of view, then you should sound American or you should sound your, you know, European if you're doing, um, or English if you're singing, you know, an English score. So it, it, really understanding what it comes from, being your best instruments, and understanding what you have to say as an artist, too. Who, who, what, what is your kind of overriding value as an artist? Like, for me, it is trying to rise, raise vibrations of the planet. I mean, I have two little children. I have two small babies, and I, I want to make sure that they, you know, Understand that music can be uplifting, it can heal, it can help you discover things about yourself and about the world that you didn't understand before and have this understanding. And to therefore, 
you know, get that vibration out of your body and hopefully touch someone so that they can discover something new about themselves or how to be kinder in the world or how to operate in a more secure way from their personal gut dynamic. That is so awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, One good thing is that we're not coming at this opera from a place of always seeing the MS. Mm-hmm. We kind of get get to that towards the end. Right. It's more about the joy, the absolute, you know, un- unbelievable talent that this woman had that was so natural. I mean, she could learn a concerto in two days and have it memorized. You know, she was she was just kind of otherworldly and probably accessing different parts of her brain than a lot of us can. And, you know, I think on some level, people wonder if those two things are related. I don't know if they are. Um, but I, I, I don't even know what happens to me sometimes when I'm out there doing it. I, I know that, that if I feel something a little too much in my throat, then I'll go, Oh, okay. Okay. Breathe, breathe, you know, don't physicalize it too much. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're a performer, you know what it is actually, you have to detach a little bit so that you can, you know, stay within the, the realm of, clean and, and comfortable vocal technique, you know, when anything you're, 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 you're playing. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. I think it certainly does. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I, you know, I have found as a performer and you at, at your caliber, I'm sure, well, you've alluded to it a bit here is, you know, where is the line? Where is the line of commitment? How, what, you know, how much can you do to tell the story without sacrificing the, the thing that you are, are there to do the thing that you have been hired to do. And I think you've been, you know, you've been man- managing and maintaining that balance very well. And I think it, it does help that, you know, we're seeing this cellist kind of at, at a couple of different points and that we're not going to see the development of the MS until a little bit later. So that does, that definitely helps me kind of wrap my brain around how you're going to, how you're going to do this. Yeah. But now we're not that we're on the topic. Can we actually dive into the piece? Can you tell us about maybe some of the dramatic or musical moments for the audience to look forward to and what it's been like collaborating with, Luna Pearl Wolf and Royce Fabric, and I think you've worked with both of them before, so you already have relationships with these with these creators. Yes, um, well, we we definitely um, Luna really took to heart the fact that one of Jacqueline's ma- major and most famous cello concerti, the Elgar in E minor, mm-hmm. you know, she really kind of put that on the map. But a lot of other people would kind of play it and. and Maybe they were too precious with it. And she just attacked it like a beast. I mean, she just, she, you know, glissandied all over the place. We kind of touch on that and make a joke about her glissandoitis. And, you know, we, we talk <laughs> about, you know, we talk about how, you know, she was, um, we, we hear that theme, you know, bum, 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 you know, this, this, bum, ba-dum, you know, every time that comes back, right, we feel, mm-hmm. feel that Elgar. Um, we hook into that, we talk about Brahms, we talk about Daniel Barenboim and their love relationship and her becoming a woman and her separating from her family, you know, she was, she was this proper English girl and her mom and she were so close and but she wanted to marry Daniel Barenboim. She even converted to Judaism for him. I mean, she loved this man. We have, you know, and her parents kind of, I wouldn't say disowned her, but they weren't really approving of the fact that she wanted to convert to Judaism and marry him. Um, so that was really hard on her. And then here she was traveling all over the world. And then she started to see signs of her disease. And we go back and forth in time a little bit, her revisiting when she was a child and hugging her cello and Oh, I'm so excited about this new friend she has, mm. her Monami. And we, you know, Matt uh, Heimovitz, the cellist extraordinaire, had a chance to work with her uh, in his life when he was just starting out. And he um, was introduced to her. So there's a personal connection there. We've talked about, you know, anecdotes of, of what she had to say and how she kept talking about her disease. She, at this point, she'd already been diagnosed with MS and was, you know, just kind of only teaching and really not performing anymore and how she would talk about it as this fucking disease. Yep. You know, and, uh, and people probably, you know, look at her as, Oh, well, she's this good English girl and oh, shiny, fat, happy, and, you know, not kind of seeing her in that way, but my God, you know, she, she was 
this huge star and then it was all being taken away from her right in front of her face you know she was trying to find it so and fully beyond her control yeah yeah and with luna and i you know we we'd worked on um her pillar opera and i played ruth uh ruth madoff you know that's an opera about bernie madoff and we delved deep into that but this process of working on Jacqueline has been a almost a three-year process we started talking about it a while ago we've had workshops all over the U.S. and and Canada and Royce and I became friends when I did Dog Days by David T. Little and uh, I had asked Royce if he would come on board and so and then with Michael Morey we started workshopping and we started kind of really deciding like who is Jacqueline and what what parts do we want to tell about her I mean we don't want to just say First she did this, and then she did that, and then she right. did that, you know, and we didn't want to get too much into kind of what the Hillary and Jackie movie got into, <laughs> um, uh, which I never watched, by the way, because I didn't want that, you know, to to affect how I would play her. I wanted to try to feel her from a very, very simplistic, you know, what I've seen on YouTube and how I've listened to her music and a few anecdotes from people who are still alive and who have talked to me about her. Mm-hmm. Um, but not from, you know, a movie director's point of view. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Uh, can, yeah. can you just preview for us um, how this work is orchestrated and how maybe it's musically organized and what, like we already talked about the Elgar Concerto, where I, the audience could probably look forward to hearing some of those melodies uh, interspersed throughout the show. But are there other things that will help the audience really just feel relaxed when they go to see this show? Oh, I feel relaxed. You will feel like ready to, ready, feel ready to be engaged. How about that? Ready. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I hope that they will pay attention. Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, one woman is singing the whole time and, uh, and one cellist is playing and it's a real chamber piece. It's a, it's a moment mm. for us to, to, we, we meld into one character. We become one character. We, you know, you have to listen for the jokes. You have to listen for the heartbreak. Um, there, I would call her music serialistic um, it, with incredible, gorgeous melody, um, incredibly difficult writing for both the voice and the cello. Um, <laughs> Matt and I would joke. We're like, oh, it's just too hard. I can't, I can't do this. It's too hard. <laughs> and then she, and then Luna would say, no, try it, try it. Come on. You can do this. Come on. And just, just give it a shot, you know? And, and, um, Boy, I, I, you know, I, I, I came to music actually kind of late. And so in some ways I still felt like I was catching up, you know, but, and I've done Peja Antwos music, which is also hard. And David T. Little, you know, you finally learn how to count after a few years of being a soprano. I've heard that. I've heard that if you do new music long enough, you learn how to count. <laughs> exactly. And so I, I think it all finally has caught up with me and I, I can do it now. And boy, you know, talk about new synapses in the brain opening to hear some of it. It's like, Wow. At first, I didn't understand it, and now I do, and, and it's amazing music, and it's so, uh, it's so heartbreaking and so beautiful. Um, we 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 sing a little bit of Brahms that comes through. Oh, the first the first sonata, I love that one so much. Exactly. So, um, and then a little bit of, of this feeling of. Um, they, they were married at the, the Wailing Wall, and so we have this kind of klezmer. <laughs> yes. you know, you know, going, but that's what Matt's playing. I'm, I'm not singing that. You know, <laughs> some trills are kind of doing that for me. But wailing at the Wailing Wall, but not wailing. We're just we're getting married at the Wailing Wall, and so this is kind of this new take on things. And we there's some dream world aspect of it too. You know, it's I feel like we really were able to bring it into an interesting story to tell we aren't maybe being um so chronological you know and and we did this and then she did we're we're definitely bringing in some of that inner inner um monologue of of what her feelings were and how she was dealing with the disease and how she was making jokes about it and going oh you know i'm Jacqueline Dupre that's what everybody calls me so why can't they why can't they cure me you know i mean this is ridiculous come on you know and also this woman came from such a place of innocence and truth and kind of the the good side of the ego not the bad side of the ego the true you know just knowing oh no that was a good take we'll keep that take and let's move on and 
um, and laughing, you know, because in the press people would say, oh, she takes wild liberties and, oh, she's a hussy because she straddles the Stradivarius, <laughs> you know, and we kind of play on that a little bit. And here she was, this woman, this, this young, beautiful woman in front of an orchestra of all men in tuxedos. And she, she rode that Stradivarius like it was her, you know, horse. <laughs> we could say horse. Yeah, oh, yeah sure. That works. Sure. <laughs> it was her, you know, and she felt like Samson. And, you know, she, and she had that flowing hair. We have reference to that. You know, there's just all of these beautiful references that Royce brought in of, you know, the primrose and garlic and cowslip that she would play in the fields with her sister. And she wanted to remember that time with her sister and her mother calling them and, and, you know, we break, she weaves, Luna weaves in the music of Brahms and, and Elgar and in those feelings as well, in those times when we're talking about those good memories. And then she has the tough things to deal with, these disease, and it's more jagged, it's more jarring, you know. You know, the right. cello's kind of a little more like, oh, oh, what is this? And we feel it from the inside out. We really feel her, you know, numbness her her aching that ms you know brings upon a human marnie it's george i get to ask the last question for the night hi in our next segment we're going to look back at the career of course of mirella franny who died earlier uh yesterday this week um if I was to ask you to give us one recording of one piece of hers that you might want to listen to, what would be on your playlist? Oh, I mean, she's my absolute favorite Mimi and one of my top favorite butterflies. But I would say Mimi because the way she sang, La Mia Cufieta, <laughs> you know, that little part, it broke my heart the first time I heard that. And I went, oh. That's how it's supposed to go. <laughs> you know, she just she just had it. She was Mimi. <laughs> Marnie, it's been a blast having you on the show. I don't think we've had a guest sing so much. <laughs> oh, sorry. On the air. It's been me fabulous. Uh, we are here for it. More <laughs> guests should sing more often. <laughs> the pleasure has been all ours. Jacqueline runs from February 19 to 23 at the Betta Elephant Theater with yes. Tapestry Opera in Toronto, of course, featuring soprano Marnie Breckenridge and cellist Matt Heimovitz. Thank you so much for being on our show. We love you. you. Oliver, Ashley, and George. <laughs> love you guys. Yeah. Best of luck with everything. And please, uh, please come say hi after the show if you come. Oh, my okay. goodness, yes. Oh my Break God. all the We're, legs. Uh, toy, toy, toy for the premiere. Will do. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Matt. <laughs> thank Mal. you. The great Marilla Franey passed away yesterday at the age of 84. We share some of our favorite performances of the Italian diva next on America's Talk radio show about opera. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Encoda. Endorsed by Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce D. Donato, Encoda is like a Spotify of scores. It's like, the, it's like the Netflix for new music. It's like the Hulu of notes. <laughs> okay. Encoda is a beautiful app for streaming the world's largest digital library of sheet music on subscription. They got your novellos. They uh, got your recordings. Oh, they got yeah. your Baron Do They got your mm. Calmuses, though. Do you want to have Calmus at your fingertips? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that's cleared up by now. Encoda has aggregated a hundred catalogs from your favorite publishers. Mm. That's thousands of titles, millions of pages of music at your fingertips. Hopefully you don't get a paper cut, but you won't because it's digital. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll a get a million little paper cuts. You'll get a you know? tablet cut instead. <laughs> Practice, play, and perform off your phone, laptop, tablet, even your phablet. Wait, wait what's that? <laughs> okay. That's your uh, phone tablet. You know those really big phones that only basketball players can hold? You Basically, know? you can play it on your smart toilet. Yes. The Encoda Encoda app makes editing and sharing sheet music stress-free and easy. Search content, browse curated playlists, and discover new music by using unique smart technology. That's actually a really good idea. Like, what if you can have music on your refrigerator, those smart refrigerators? <laughs> like, so, like, as you're, like, standing there, like, trying to decide what to do, you could be practicing. You Where know? is my milk? <laughs> this isn't for you, Oliver, because you don't do smart. Oh. <laughs> Wherever you are, oh, utilize yeah. all of Encoda's features and keep your entire library of scores in one place. Download Encoda from your app store today for a free trial. That's N-K-O-D-A. 
And you could also go to encoda.com to learn more. Thanks very much to Marnie Breckenridge. What a she nice, nice is lady. Such a delight. What I a... just I wanna I wanna buy her a cocktail. That's what I really <laughs> want. Marnie, when you're in Chicago, call me. Drinks on me. Apparently she was in Chicago doing a Jake Heggie bit uh at uh Ravinia a couple of years ago and I had no idea, so I missed it. So now if she ever comes back to Chicago, I will be well, there. Well she's in my I... Google Alerts now. It's happening. <laughs> okay, awesome. I wonder if she's an XFL fan. The XFL is back. It is back. This time without... He uh, hate me. Do you ever he hate me? <laughs> <laughs> Just barely. Here's what I love about the XFL is the NFL is over. And so now we have all of this time through like the majority of the year where you might want some football and you don't have me. So now it turns out that you do, in fact, have some football. Unfortunately, our closest XFL team is in St. Louis. So I think, George, you and I do... An OTSL and XFL summer road trip. Hashtag OTSL XFL 2020. Well, they have the money to send you out there now. So, <laughs> gonna get to that in a second. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. According to Italian newspapers, the beloved Italian soprano Morella Franey died at her home in Modena due to illness. Franey, one of the most dignified and elegant artists to grace the world's greatest stages, preserved her sumptuous tone quality through shrewd choice of repertoire, allowing her to enjoy a career that lasted a half century. She was the last in a line of Italian sopranos who prompted ovations with their entrances alone, a link to singers from the golden era and earlier, such as Renata Tabaldi, Licia Albanese, Magda Olivero, and Claudia Muzio. She was also indelibly linked to Luciano Pavarotti, the other singer who hailed from Modena, with whom she shared many an evening, offering her frozen little hand. So this one kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, we haven't really heard about Mila Franey, and apparently she has been sick. Uh, so this was a shock, and you know, it came yesterday when every all the gays were concerned about Oscars. So it sort of. <laughs> fell to this morning's news for everybody to realize that it happened. Um, there are many beautiful tributes that are already out there. New York Times, Opera Wire, all the places where you get your uh, opera news in print. Uh, you can read them. Uh, but since we are an audio format, let us pay our tribute by listening to some of her performances. I'd like to start with a recording of Mila Lafreni singing Tatiana's letter scene from Eugene Onegin uh, from the gallery opening of the Zurich Opera House in 1984. This is when Freni was in her prime, when she was past singing the Inas and the Etas and singing the more full lyric repertoire. And man, the pitch is so good. The tone is so strong. The acting is all in her face and in her eyes. And she's just so classy. And uh, what a great performance. So this is uh, just the second half of Tatiana's letter scene. I also want to say that my first hearing of Mila Lafrenia, the first time I ever heard her sing, was back when I was a little teenage gay, watching <laughs> um, the operas broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera uh, on PBS. And there was a broadcast of The Marriage of Figaro, and I don't remember anybody else in the cast, but I do remember that Mila Lafrenia was the countess. And there was a little interview with her uh, between the acts. 
where the interviewer was, you know, commenting on how she graduated to the role of the countess. And I had no idea. I was like 16 years old or something like that. I had no idea what that even meant back when I was that young, what Fox were and what an aging voice might sound like. But now that I think about it, you know, a woman who spent so much of her life singing Susanna and Zelina and, you know, Adina and these, you know, lighter lyric roles to be able to come back to an opera and sing, you know, the big prima donna role. And I just remember being so moved and I didn't know anything about opera at that point. I just knew that there was something that was so dignified and classy about this woman and the way she communicated with stillness, just with the voice, just with posture, just with grace. Uh, I was blown away and I was a fan ever since. Anyway, I don't know where that, the video of that uh, Contessa performance is. It's somewhere out there in the ether. It hasn't been redistributed on uh, by the Met and I don't see it anywhere on the YouTubes, but it's out there somewhere. If some of you or somebody knows where that is or has a VHS of it, please upload it so we can all enjoy it. Ashley? Yeah, um, you know, you were talking about how you you had a very distinct memory of, of things when you were, you know, sort of a baby teenage gay. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't really get deeply into Morella Franey until graduate school. Um, I had a professor who was really big on, you know, recordings of the greats. He was like, this is how you learn. This is how you learn from the generation before you because you're not always going to get to see things live, so you're going to do recordings. Um, and I had to do, of all things, a study on Maria Callas roles done here in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had to do a deep dive on Elvira in Iportani. Mm. And uh, so I went to this professor and I said, well, who do you, you know, where should I start? Should I start with a callous recording? And he goes, actually, no. I want you to find Marilla Franey. Singing I have Elvira that recording. <laughs> in E-Porto. Oh, my goodness. It is. I, you know, I pulled a number of things, but, you know, I heard her Boheme live in 69 and I heard, you know, Aida, Don Carlo. And then finally I pulled out this Elvira recording. And what blew my mind about her was that there was such a clean, a cleanliness of the sound. I couldn't tell what she was doing with her with her head and her mechanism, and mm-hmm. I didn't know where that sound was coming out of, if it was coming out of the back of her head, the top of her head, the front of her face, no idea. But it was, it was unlike anything I had ever heard before. It was so pure and clear and distinct. So the recording that I wanted to share was something that was very moving to me also what helped me fall in love with the role of Elvira and this uh this this little guy Bellini um was a, a recording of Quilla Voce which is the first part of one of the famous arias I for Elvira and Iporitani this recording is from 1965 in the Roman Opera Theater Orchestra with Franco Ferraris conducting <laughs> So one of the things that Mila Franey kind of embodies is the idea of the phrase, the love of the phrase, and um, the really difficult thing to parse, which is simplicity. And when I was first coming up as a young opera queen, um, I was always interested in the singers that were flashy and that you know did these really explicit technical feats and I didn't really understand how simplicity is hard but now that Mm -hmm. I'm you know a certain age and I teach singing and I still sing myself every now and then and I want that communication that just really clear communication that can only come from beautiful diction uh, a 
focused tone quality that's in tune and um yeah very deliberate phrasing and that's what Merle Franey does you know yeah it's it's almost it's almost so easy that you forget how challenging that must be I mean, mm. again if you're drawn to flashy singers mm. which i know i was too there's something about them that sort of telegraphs hey this is hard and i'm i'm not that it's not that it sounds like it's challenging for them, mm-hmm. but because they're doing so many acrobatics, it's like they're subliminally telling you, hey, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. But when you have those people that are more r- relaxed and 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 organic when it comes to their phrasing, which, you know, a lot of Italian singers of this era were, but she's kind of the poster child for this, is that you don't understand the challenge until, like you said, you're a little bit further along in your study, your career, when you're teaching singers mm-hmm. and you're trying to get them to not use flash and tricks yeah. to get through. It's like she's just organically singing the notes on the yeah. page in the right duration, but she's telling the story sing it, so clearly. Sing it legato, yes. sing it in tune, and sing it beautifully. Mm-hmm. How hard is that it to is do? <laughs> magical how hard that is yeah. and it was it was fascinating to watch uh, a diva such as her do it so well well one of the recordings or roles that she's going to be linked to forever is um, Mimi mm. there's that great recording uh, with Carian conducting and Pavarotti as uh, Rodolfo but here's a live recording that um, Matt would like us to play uh, this is from a broadcast from Rome from the IRA from, from RAI uh, in Rome um, from 1969 with Thomas Shippers conducting. So there are plenty of other things that you just listen to. I've definitely listened to The Butterfly. Um, that She'd recorded it twice, actually, in her career, once with Carion and once with Sinopoli, I think. Um, and uh, that's a role that she sings so gorgeously, but she says she would never sing it on stage because it's just too emotional for her. She could never get through it. Mm. But there's that movie of her singing, I think, Domingo as Pinkerton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and then later in her career, you know, the Verdi roles like uh, Elisabetta and Don Carlo. Um, she did, I mean, she is known for actually really being protective of her voice and not singing things that are above her weight. But Carion pushed her to try experiment with Aida when she was still a lyric soprano. And that's the Aida recording that has Agnes Balza as um, Amneris and Jose Carreras as Radames. And of those three, only Carreras really is a convincing uh, in a role that's heavier than what he should be singing. But there are some details that come out when lyric voices sing those Verdi roles that are super interesting. Uh, Aida sounds so much more youthful and I have to say, Agnes Balsa is wicked as Amneris. It's one of my favorites, actually. Which, in a lot of ways, I mean, given yeah. the actual storytelling that needs to yeah. happen, it, it is kind of nice, if not you yeah. know, damaging, to hear younger voices. Um, she also sings a beautiful Susanna uh, with uh, Jesse Norman as the Contessa in the mm. Colin Davis recording of Ma- uh, Marriage of Figaro from probably the 60s or 70s. I forget when that was. And then later in the career, uh, the Adriana Lecouvreur is gorgeous. Uh, the Tosca is gorgeous. Uh, anything that requires just more volume and richness and those, you know, Verdi lines. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mila Franey is the person to go to. My friend Roberta, who was one of the co-hosts of Opera 
Now podcast would have so much more to say. And I'm so sorry that she's not on this panel to uh, help us guide us through the discography, uh, the legacy that um, Mila Larfini had left behind. But now you know, if it's, if it's the first time hearing this name, if you're one of those young upstarts that's just getting into opera, go check it out. There's a rabbit hole you can go down, uh, especially on YouTube, obviously, on Spotify. You know what I think we should do? I think we should start a Lafreni appreciation post on the Opera Box War Facebook page. Okay. So that... Each of us can put in one of our favorite recordings. But also, listeners, I think we want to hear from you, those of you that love Lafreni. You know, once we have that post on our Facebook page, you should uh, you should feel free to share recordings. And then those of you that are just getting into uh, the magic that is Freni, you can... Uh, you can create your own YouTube playlist great, from it. Great way to engage our audience, Hey, Ashley. <laughs> you know what? I do. I, I legitimately... You know, we... I know... I know all of you guys and respect your opinions very much, and I appreciate your artistry. But, you know, the people that I don't know as much about are our listeners, so I'd like to hear from them. So once we get that post up, show me show me who you love in terms of recordings of Franny. Coming up next, everything you need to know about the past week in opera, some big money in St. Louis, and some big head shaking in New Zealand. That's next. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Listed, this is great, Listed is must-listen podcast for opera by Playbill. Week after week, Opera Box Score is talking to opera's most important players, aggregating all the news in the week and amplifying the best work in a crowded field. If you're new to the show, look back in our, archi- in our archives and hear interviews with the likes of artistic director of Opera Humboldt's Alright, ready? If you're new to the show... Look back in our archives to hear interviews with the likes of artistic director of Opera Omaha's One Festival, James Dara, Grammy-winning conductor, Michael Christie, and Baroque diva, Emuka Barat. It's way more exciting than watching the Bears-Packers game the other day. It is. That defined a new level of mediocrity for our Chicago All I, Bears. It was as soon as the Bears had a chance. It was how can Mitch Trubisky screw this up. Also, this banter, I can't read. This is how the show really goes. Impress the date you take to the opera by listening to our OBS Hall of Fame segments where we take a deep dive into the works and artists that you need to know. Toby, didn't you induct yourself into the Hall of Fame I once? did, and you need to know that. And if you don't have time to keep Keep up with all the news from Opaland. Jump right to the two-minute drill. Our team's hot takes on the week's opera headlines, including who's getting fired and hired in the fast-paced world of opera. Fast-paced world of opera. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Access the complete archives by adding Opera Box Score to your podcast favorites or just stream it from the Opera Box Score page on SoundCloud. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this past week in what Kirite Kanawa calls, quote, an insensible blow to the arts in New Zealand. The country's only classical music radio station, RNZ Concert, plans to relaunch as a platform aimed at an 18 to 35 audience that does not include classical recordings, cultural interviews, and live concerts. Dame Kiri is shaking her head. The Ravinia Festival, home of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra during the summer, has appointed Marin Alsop as the chief conductor and curator. This protege of Leonard Bernstein and the music director of the Baltimore Symphony begins her new position this summer. Congratulations to friends of our show, Opera Theatre St. Louis, which received $45 million from a longtime fan. Phyllis Herndon Brissenden, a life board member, died December 17th and left Opera Theatre the General Endowment Fund, that sum, the largest gift that the organization's ever received. General Director Andrew Drew Jorgensen called it, quote, transformative. Sounds like it might be in their budget to fly out a few opera radio host podcaster types to cover the story. With the last performance of any kind being in September 2019 and the last communication of any kind from their press office in August... Website Parterre has officially pronounced the death of New York City Opera. The foremost American opera blog calls on NICO management to come clean and confess that they are over and done. Friends of the show and Grammy winner baritone John Brancy has been named Musical America's new artist of the month. A spotlight for emerging talent. The trusted publication thinks you should know. Yeah, we already knew Musical America. Thanks anyway. The Metropolitan Opera has announced the replacement, Flying Dutchman, for their new production, which was supposed to have starred Sir Bryn Terfel, having appeared in other Wagner roles, the Russian-based baritone Evgeny Nikitin. 
receives his highest profile assignment yet at the Met. Note that the New York Times' Michael Cooper also revealed that this artist withdrew from a new production at the Bayreuth Festival after a video of him surfaced showing a tattoo resembling a swastika on his chest. Mr. Nikitin later said that the tattoo was part of a heraldic crest in an eight-pointed star that was left unfinished. The nominees are set for the 2020 International Opera Awards. We're going to break down the finalists on a future show. Winners announced May 4th. On the disabled list, Angela Hewitt's piano. In a distraught Facebook post, the virtuoso Canadian pianist reports that her custom fazioli was dropped and destroyed beyond repair by piano movers during transport. No one was hurt, but Hewitt lamented, quote, I adore this piano. It was my best friend, best companion. I loved how it felt when I was recording, giving me the possibility to do anything I wanted. Now it is no longer. And on this day, February 10th, we commemorate the birthdays of Adelina Patti, the Italian diva who made her professional debut at age 16. Born on this day in 1843, Italian tenor Alessandro Bonci was born in 1870. No relation to the pizza joint. And OBS Hall of Fame Leontine Price turns 93 today. In first performances, Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman premiered at the Opera Comique in 1881. Rimsky-Korsakoff's The Snow Maiden debuted in St. Petersburg in 1882. And in 1927, it was the first performance of Krennic's jazz opera, Johnny Spielt Auf. In Leipzig, that's your two-minute drill. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Bosco, our podcast-only version of the show. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho. And yet we still have so many mistakes for you to listen to. (laughs) Hey, guys. Uh, One more item that fell off the two-minute drill for for length. Uh, Conductor Nello Santi died uh, at age 88, and that... um, When did he die? He died last week. I think February 6th is when he died. Um, You've never been to Bonchi Pizzeria here in Chicago? He's like a really famous Italian. Wow. Do you what mean a bocce? What a pivot. I don't uh, mean bocce. No, I mean oh, Bonchi. No, oh, I've never, no, I've never been to Bonchi. No. <laughs> I just gave Ashley the death eye over pizza. So, I, listen, I apologize. I, no, no. Is what I would be saying. So, so much sad news but and good news this week. The whole thing with um, RNZ concert. Can you imagine an entire country loses its classical music programming on the radio, free free programming on the radio? And they did, you know, live concerts from New Zealand Symphony and Auckland Philharmonia um, to reformat for whatever they're going to play instead. 18 to 35-year-olds. That is a heartbreaker. There's a big movement right now um, to try to convince whoever, like the government, whatever, that that funds these things to reconsider this. But Well, they should. Nails in the coffin, it seems like. And that's... I mean, how many Post Malone songs can you play <laughs> in like a 24-hour... First of all, it's, it, you know, they're kind of like Everclear, you know, where everything yeah. kind of sounds the same. It's Post just Malone's kind of like that. It's just the dumbing down of culture. Just like, even if it's not a profitable venture to... Give the you know publicity arm for things like New Zealand Symphony Orchestra and Auckland and wasn't Simone Young from well she's from Australia I think you know but um, you know there are great artists in that hemisphere that are now losing one platform for them to get their work out there you know especially with someone like Kirite Kanawa coming from New Zealand I mean you think and Taika Waititi and Taika Waititi <laughs> yes. 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 yes yes exactly yes. and um, Penny Patti the tenor as yeah. well I mean it's Crazy. And other bad news. We'll get to the good you news. Want to do next. the bad news first. Yeah, I'll get oh, the other yeah. way. Um, that piano story is such is a heartbreaker. Devastating. Can you imagine, like, if an instrument that you brought with you everywhere? I'm like, I don't know how she affords to bring it where she goes everywhere, but to all her concerts and recordings, you know, and just to have that relationship with a Fazioli of all instruments. I mean, like, yeah. they're all great instruments, but Fazioli's are like. The Maseratis of piano right yeah, now. Yeah, so. they're, they're beautiful, beautiful instruments. Yeah, no, I mean, everything about it was heartbreaking. And she said, you know, this was her best friend. And I fully believe her. There are a lot of instrumentalists that I know that their their dedication to their, for lack of a better description, inanimate object. Like, that is their that is their thing. I cannot imagine what it, it would be like. It seems so shocking, too, because, I mean, if it is a clarinet or a viola, most of viola, nobody would care. But <laughs> oh, if it's a violin, like... These are small instruments. You you could it could be stolen. You could leave it somewhere. There's something so indestructible about a piano, and yet, I don't know where they dropped it. I mean, from like a stage to a ground. Like, I mean, how many feet did it have to fall for it to 
like the metal frame apparently was completely beyond repair. So, and not to mention the case. And, well, there's more bad news too here. The um, replacement for Bryn Turfel at the Met. Ooh. It's like, dude, come on. Well, I mean, like, part of a heraldic crest. In every language I mean, possible. who do you, who do you think you are, Klingsor? Oh yeah. God! I don't know about. I mean, like we maybe we have to take him at his word. I don't know. I mean, like there are not many people out there who can sing Dutchman. So I mean, I'm not I'm not defending him at all. But maybe he just maybe just like maybe Pasta Domingo didn't touch all those women. You know, like in a world where permission and consent weren't a thing, I would just walk in and be like, "Buddy, top off now." Let's, I'm going to count. I'm going to count the points. I'm going to see yeah. how many there are. It was left unfinished, so it's very obvious. Just go get it finished, yeah. so we can stop talking about it. Yeah. I yeah, I, it's, okay. And moving on to the twenty twenty guys, how are we talking about this yeah. in twenty twenty? So we have finally we we talked about international opera awards and that we are in award season. Mm-hmm. So we will break down the nominees in a future podcast. But um, some names to throw around: uh, Christine Gerke, Lizette Orpreza, Elsa Vandenheber, all singers that I love are up for awards. And on the uh, male side, Javier Camarena, Mexico, go Mexico, Renee Pop. Our um, detractor, our was it byway detractor, and um, <laughs> Russell Thomas, all good things. Uh, some companies that receive recognition: Deutsche Oper am Rhein, uh, Teatro Real, um, and others. So uh, we have until May for it to uh, handicap this. We'll do a deep dive, I yeah. think, on another yeah. show. Yeah, uh, who yes. will win and who should yeah. win? Yeah, in a month and a week when Marilla Franey doesn't die. So yeah. John Brancy, congratulations, friend of the show, Yay, uh, for being named New Artist of the Month. A little bit late, he already has a Grammy, but you know, it's good to have all this publicity. Lots of nice things once. happen in February. Yes. Uh, kudos to Opera Theater St. Louis. Man, 45 mil. They don't need all of that. For a company yeah. that size, though, that, I mean, it is. It is yeah. fully transformative. Yeah. It is transformative. General Director Andrew Jorgensen had said, I mean, it makes you think, like, how do you amass $45 million in the first place? I know why you would give it to an opera company that you were on the board for. Mm-hmm. I'm just amazed that one person could have that amount of money. Have you heard of Michael Bloomberg? Have you seen Have you seen that thing called There's not capitalism? There's a lot of Bloomberg. That, uh, I have, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the one thing that I can say is that the cost of living in, in the center of the country is, is slightly less than on the coast. So perhaps, fair. you know, perhaps fair, a nice actually. place in Fenton is uh, a little easier to maintain, perhaps. Quite possibly. Are we going to talk about my yeah, beloved Yeah, we were saving that because I, I had a feeling that you wanted to talk about this. So. I, I, I don't want to oversell it, guys, but I definitely put in the rundown for the show tonight in all caps, Marin Alsop is my favorite everything, and I actually <laughs> jumped when I heard this. Um, I'm not kidding. I, I adore this woman. Uh, she's she's such an incredible musician. She, as I have been privileged to understand, is a very kind human um, and the last link that we have to Bernstein. Also, P.S., did you guys know that she created Too Hot to Handle? I did not the jazz know that. Jazz Gospel Messiah? I did not know okay. that. I actually went to see Too Hot to Handle this year for the first time on the 15th anniversary. Uh-huh. And was I, it indeed Too Hot to Handle? It was bananas amazing Hmm. i was not expecting i i walked in and was like all right i get what they're okay okay sure this will be this will be fine it was incredible seriously one of the best things i've seen probably in the last calendar year it was Hmm. so smart so well done um and then i was reading and they were like oh yeah created and conceived by marin alsop i was like my marin alsop my my marin alsop that's that's a lot. Um, but yeah, no, this this person is is such an incredible artist, and there are things that keep bringing her to Chicagoland, and I keep hoping, you know, I keep writing affirmations in my journal that we're just going to get all here. of her yeah, exactly, one day, yeah. because she's just such an incredible musician. Well, Ricardo Muti's concert got to be coming up soon. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of things at play here. But no, seriously, I saw her in, in the span of three days conduct Chike Six Pathetique Symphony from memory, and then turn around and do Beethoven 9 in Chichester on a program also from memory. I mean, this woman is a phenom. She is a powerhouse. I I will watch any concert that she does. I will jump at any ta- any chance I have to work under her baton. So the fact that she is coming to be a part of Ravinia all the time is that was I mean my birthday was last week and this was the most exciting thing yeah. that happened to me all week last so week. So just let's let's make it a little bit more explicit for the audience. Uh, you sing in Chicago Symphony Chorus. I do. And were you in the um, Mahler Eight mm-hmm. uh, concert? Can you tell us what it's like to be in a concert like that that has so many moving parts and soloists and children's chorus and, you know, people singing from the rafters and stuff like that and under her leadership? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I will answer that, but I do want to go back uh, to to Chichester first because okay. she did the, the year before. Um, we initially had a series of contracts that, that summer and 
we had them under a different conductor who was then uh, kindly asked to not conduct anymore. We can get into that at another time. Uh, but one, the one program that they kept for the symphony chorus was the Chichester Psalms Beethoven 9 together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we all kind of understood, like, oh, this, this person is coming in to take this over. She just so happens to be Bernstein's final protege. So there was there was something kind of emotional and inspirational about that. And then to see the way that she ran rehearsal with the coolest even head, the way that she worked specifically with with the uh, boy soprano soloist mm-hmm. and just was able to keep her finger on the pulse of everything that was happening and was cool as a cucumber the entire time. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of things. Also, it's it's blazing hot. It's the middle of the summer in Highland mm-hmm. Park, Illinois. It's very warm out and there. And it could rain. <laughs> and it could rain, which has definitely happened. I My first year there, it was a torrential downpour and we were wearing white tops. Mm-hmm. I called it the, the world's classiest wet t-shirt contest. Um, but yeah, so it, there, was, there was that. And then to go to last season... Which was the Mahler 8. And you're right. I mean, there are so many moving parts. Huge chorus, double chorus, and then all of the soloists and all of the things that are happening. And, and children's chorus. And yeah. children's chorus. I mean, yeah. just a, a, the the amount of calamity that is possible there mm-hmm. and, and that you're kind of expecting. You're kind of expecting yeah. stuff to go wrong. And little things did. But again, all eyes are on this one person who is supposed to corral and lead everything that's going on and not only did she do it she did it with class and she did it with grace and brilliant musicianship and you can tell that you know the the people in the chorus which is you know that's where i sit we all adore her we love working under her we love working with her in our solo re- or our just us rehearsals with her but we also love how we get to work with her and sort of the larger ensemble that's there you can also tell that the musicians of the chicago symphony respond very well to her it's a it's a very different style than than is with other guest conductors that they have um there's something really unique and really special about that chemistry and that grouping and that connection so i am delighted to see what's going to happen with chicago symphony and the rest of Romania this summer the sports metaphor would really be that the conductors kind of like the head coaches say a football team but that doesn't stand up because a head coach has so many typically men underneath him typically him mm. uh running that organization when i look at conductors in action it is to me, it seems a very lonely place to be. 100%. And it, it is really just you, as you say, corralling yeah. Ashley, all of those instrumentalists, singers. She's doing musicians. all of these things. She's She's got all of these, you know, musical human plates spinning on the top of these sticks. She's also doing all of this, most of the time, from memory, with no score. I don't understand people's brains that work that way. I'm deeply fascinated and fully respect mm-hmm. it. We uh, need to wrap it up. We got any more time? No. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right. Hey, thanks everybody for hanging out with us tonight on the podcast only version of the show. Good call, bad call. Ashley Hardgrave, what's on your mind? My good call is something we spoke about a little bit earlier today. My good call is to the New Zealand PM, Jacinda Arden, who is joining the chorus to save New Zealand's classical radio. So, first of all, she's the youngest prime minister, I believe, ever in the world. Uh, And she said, quote, we need to broaden the access of all New Zealanders to the arts. One does not need to come at the cost of another. So Chicago Opera Theater has a pretty good formula for rolling out their season. They do one show on the Friday of the first week, and then they do two shows in the second weekend. So it gives chance for press, uh, and it gives chance also to work out some kinks. You know, if, So I didn't go to the Prima of Freedom Ride, so I do intend on going this weekend. I hope to see some of you there. Uh, I'm a really big fan of Lydia Yankovskaya, and... This is uh, an opera I really know nothing about. I know that it has like some social justice implications, and we're all about that here on Opera Box Score. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with your special someone. We're back next week, Monday, February 17, 9 p.m. Central. More opera news, more hot takes, more love letters. Join us.